0: Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. If you'd like to sponsor or dedicate an episode of Your Torah, please get in touch via our website, which can be found at ukjofa.org. Hi, my name is Davida Komar, and I'm really excited to learn myself at Bava with you today, just for a little bit about myself. I am the program administrator for the Center for Modern Torah Leadership, and I also tutor statistics and Jewish studies at Yeshiva University's CAT School for their Associates Degree program. And I've spent time learning formerly in GPATS, in Stern, and at Nishmat Shanaba Arts program, as well as the Center for Modern Torah Leadership's Summer Beit Nidrash. So I'm especially excited to learn Masechet Bava Mitzia with you guys, because it's actually the first Masechet that I ever completed from beginning to end as part of Dafiyomi, and when you do dafiomi, you really get a sense of a very broad overview of the mesachat. So I'm very happy to share some of the things that I've learned with you. So mesachat Baba Metziah is the middle of three different mesachatot that together comprise of a mesachat that was originally called mesachat Nezikin. Those three mesachatot are called Bava Kama, Bava Mitzia, and Baba Batra. The, literally the first gate, the middle gate, and the last gate. So Baba Metziah is the middle one. It's the middle gate. Bhavakama, the first gate, spoke about damages and about theft. Bhavabhatra, the last gate, talks about property and inheritance law. And Bhavamatsia talks about civil law. The first part, which we'll go into in more depth, talks about finding things, it talks about interest. And the second half talks about a lot of different laws regarding different agreements that people make and contracts that people make with each other, or agreements that they make to work for each other, to lend things to each other, etc. So now I want to talk about just a parak by parak overview of what's Misaka Vavametzia about. So the first parak of Vavametzia is starts with a very famous mishnah of Shnaim Uchazim Batalit, two people holding a talit. The parak starts off by talking about what happens if you have an object that's a lost object, and it's clearly something that we're not going to find the owner for, and whoever finds it can take possession of this object, and two people find it at exactly the same time. So what do you do? So the Mishnah says that If two people are grabbing onto the Talit, they found it at the same time they're holding onto it. And this one says, I found it. And this one says, I found it. This one says, says, it's all mine. And the other one says, it's all mine. This one says, I don't have less than a half in it. the other one says, I too don't have less than half a share in it. And they should split it. But if one says, it's all mine, and the other says, it's half mine. The one who says, it's all mine, should swear that he doesn't have less than three quarters of a share in it. And the one who says that half of it is mine should swear that he doesn't have less than a quarter of a share in it. So then one, meaning the one who claimed that he had the whole thing, will end up taking three parts, three shares. And the one who had originally claimed the day half should take a quarter of a share. So what we see from this Mishnah that's happening is a couple things. Number one is the fact that since we can't determine whose it is, we split it, which is interesting. But also it's just how do we split it and how do we swear? We see how important swearing is, that we don't want to swear in vain because instead of having equal and swear. Oh, the entire object is mine. Instead, we swear that half of it is mine. And then the amount that the person is actually going to get from the object is the amount that they're really swearing. The pair continues with a discussion of other situations where two people find the object at the same time and are claiming it at the same time. Talks about when your family member finds an object, the head of the household is able to get possession of the object. It also talks about what happens if you find a document. Let's say the document is for a loan. Should we assume the loan was already repaid or was not already repaid? The second part continues on our conversation about found objects and focuses more on which types of objects can be claimed by a person, which types of objects cannot be claimed by a person. So how do you determine if an object can be claimed or not? We look and see, does the object have some sort of sign? Does the object have a way of knowing to whom it originally belonged? Because if we can figure out that the object originally belonged to someone and can figure out who that object belonged to, then we have the mitzvah of hashavat Aveda of returning lost objects. However, if we have no way of figuring out who the object belongs to, then we're allowed to keep that object for ourselves. So the Mishnah discusses many different cases about what constitutes the sufficient sign such that we would be able to figure out the owner. And what we end up saying is, for many cases, is it a sign that's unique, that only the owner is going to know that this object had this particular characteristic so that the owner can come up to us and say, I know that this object is mine because I know that this object has X, Y, Z. And then we who found the object, we can look at this object and say, you know, this object, you described our object well and give it back to that person and return it to the rightful owner. The third paragraph of Amamsia talks about a category of what's called shomrim, watchmen. And there are four different types of shomrim. The first type of shomer is someone who's watching an object for free. He's not getting paid. He's just doing it out of the kindness of his or her own heart. As a result, he doesn't have a maximum amount of responsibility for that object. As long as he doesn't do anything negligent, he doesn't need to pay if that object is lost, if that object is stolen, if that object becomes broken somehow through means beyond his own control. If he's negligent, he needs to pay. But if he's not negligent, he does not need to pay. He'll need to swear that he wasn't negligent. And once he swears, he doesn't have to pay. The next type is called a Shomer Sachar. A Shomer Sachar is a watchman who's being paid to watch the item. Because he's paid to watch the item, he has a greater amount of responsibility. Therefore, if the object is lost or if the object is stolen, he would be responsible for paying back the original owner of the item. The third category is called a Showel. A Showel is a person who's borrowing the item. So As opposed to the first two categories where the watchman is just watching the item on behalf of the person who owns it, the show has borrowed the item because he wants to use it on his own. And because he wants to use the item on his own, he has a maximum amount of culpability if something happens to that item. So even if something happens that's completely beyond his control, he would still need to pay. The exception is if it breaks in the process of him using it through normal use, Or there's a category called ba'alav imo, that it's with the owner, that there are certain rules that if he's considered under the owner's jurisdiction, at the time that he borrows it, he would not need to pay. The fourth category is called a socher, which is a renter. Someone is paying money for the right to use that object. And there's a discussion, but the consensus seems to be in the end that he has the same category as a shomer sachar, as the watchman who was paid to watch the object. So he would have an intermediate amount of responsibility. The fourth paragraph starts out with a discussion of how acquisitions happen. Because in generally we have a rule that the acquisition is said to take effect when, let's say I'm buying something, when I would take that object and raise it up or pull it towards me, that's when the acquisition would happen. It would not happen when I pay the money for the object. But now let's say we're doing something like trading different types of currency. For example, I'm giving you silver and you're giving me gold. So the question is, which one is considered to be the currency and which of those two things is considered to be the merchandise? Because remember, the acquisition happens when the merchandise is drawn in, lifted up, etc. So the beginning of the parak talks about when you have two different items, how do you determine which is currency, which one is merchandise? The parak continues with a conversation about ona'a. Ona'a is unfair pricing or deception. And that's what happens when you say the object is worth one amount and it's really worth another amount. And that amount can be either higher or lower. And so that causes someone to overpay or to underpay. In general, the rule for ONA is one of two possibilities. If the amount is close enough together between what the two things are worth, then what happens is we just say, OK, pay the difference, and the sale holds. But let's say the difference between the two items is so great, that sale actually gets nullified. It's as if that sale never happened, and person one gets their money back, person two gets their object back. And there are certain types of objects, such as slaves, such as documents, such as land, to which this concept of Onan does not apply. The fourth parak talks about interest. In Judaism, we have a law that we're not allowed to charge another Jew interest. And let's say I get a loan from someone. When I pay back the loan, I'm only allowed to pay back the principal. And if I'm the lender, I'm only allowed to accept the principal. We're not allowed to charge or to pay greater than the principal. That's not just referring to paying the loan back. It can also refer to any kinds of favors. For example, let's say someone lent someone else money. The borrower isn't allowed to do any kind of special favors for the lender in return for the fact that they got the money. What this serves to do is it serves to create a society in which people, when they're poor, are able to receive loans, are able to give loans to people. And it makes us a very just society that we don't need to pay people extra for our loans. Last five parks talk about different agreements between two people and what happens in those agreements. So chapter number six, Park Vav, talks about what happens when you're hiring a craftsman. Let's say they back out of the deal, what happens? Or they change the price, what happens? Or what happens if you rent an object for one type of use and then use it for a different type of use? Are you liable for anything that happens because you used it for the type of use that you hadn't promised to use it for. The seventh part continues with this idea of agreements and talks about agreements between workers. Let's say you're hiring workers. What are your obligations towards those workers? Are you allowed to tell them to come in early or to leave late? What's the rules with regarding feeding them? Because we have a mitzvah in the Torah that when you have workers who are working in a field, they're allowed to, in certain circumstances, eat from the food that they're working with. But the question is, they can eat, but are they allowed to bring other people and allow them to eat? And how much can they eat? And can they eat from the food that they're not working with? What about someone who's just watching the fruits but isn't actually working in the field? Are they allowed to take anything to eat? The eighth pair continues with the conversation about borrowing. So it's related to what we've just seen because it's also dealing with the idea of agreements because this is a borrowing agreement. But it also ties back to what we saw in the third park with the different types of watchmen, because if you remember, one of the types of watchmen was a borrower. This is where the whole concept of having the owners working with them comes into play. The fact that a borrower in presence of the owner would not need to pay for any damages. It also talks about what happens if something was borrowed and died, but for one day it was borrowed and one day you rented it. So for a renter, a renter wouldn't be obligated to pay if the animal died, because dying is considered something that's beyond the renter's control and something that's which is called onus and something that's beyond control is something that a renter is not liable for. However, on the other hand, a borrower is liable for almost everything, so a borrower would be liable for that. So how do we determine would you be liable or would you not be liable? So that's another thing that's discussed in this paragraph. Also discussed in this paragraph is what happens if you're renting a house to someone else. How much notice do you need to give them in order to say okay, I'm kicking you out and I want to rent it to someone else. Or how much notice do you have to give if you're the renter to say, I want to move somewhere else? The ninth paragraph talks about renting a field. Now, there are two main ways that a field would be rented. Way number one is person A rents a field from person B. And the payment is that they agree to give a certain share of the produce. So whatever produce that the field produces in that year, they have to give a certain percentage, a third, a half. They can contract that and decide what the exact amount is. The second way to rent the field is for a set rate, that I'm going to rent the field and I'm going to give you a certain amount of wheat, for example, for the season, for the right to rent this field. And what happens in that type of case is, let's say the field produces more or less than it's expected to, you still need to give that flat rate. So if the field had produced more, then you're in luck. If the field had produced less, you have to go to the marketplace and buy some more wheat, for example, in our case, so that you can pay the owner of the field for that wheat. In contrast, the first model in which you're just giving percentage, so whatever percentage of what you made that year, that's what you're going to pay. The ninth parak also talks about what happens if you made the agreement that you were going to plant one type of produce, and you end up planting another type. Are you liable or not? It also discusses when you set the terms for how long you're going to rent for. So does Shemitah count? Does Shemitah not count? And so on. The tenth parak talks about two people who are owning a house, and what happens if They co-own the house and the house falls down. First of all, how do they split up the stones from the house because the houses were made of stone at the time? And secondly, what happens if one of them wants to rebuild and the other one doesn't want to rebuild? So is each one allowed to require the other person to rebuild the house? We also have conversations about rebuilding other types of structures, such as an olive press. It finishes off with a discussion of, let's say you have two adjacent gardens and there are terraces there on different steps. And you have some produce that's growing out of the vertical part on the side. So which person does that item belong to? So now I want to go over a very specific Mishnah that we spoke about, which is Parak Zion Mishnah Aleph, the seventh parak, the first Mishnah. And that Mishnah reads as follows. This is back in the park that we were talking about the rights of workers. Someone who hires workers and tells them to come early to work or to go late to work. So if it's a place where the custom is that you don't come early or leave late, he's not allowed to force them to leave late or to come early. Similarly, In a place where the common practice is that you feed the workers, you would be required to feed your workers. And in a place where the common practice is to give sweets to the workers, you would need to give sweets to the workers. Ha. everything is like the practice of the place. This is really important because this is something that actually comes up throughout the nasefat. In the second half of the nasephe especially, a lot of the rules are regarding agreements. And so sometimes we have a question what the terms of the agreement are, especially in cases where let's say you didn't actually make all the terms of the agreement explicit. What happens in those cases if you didn't make the terms of the agreement explicit? What you do is you say, okay, what's the common practice in the place where we are? And that's what we end up following. We end up following the common practice. And I think that that's something that's really telling, is that in all of these discussions that we have about workers' rights, about borrowing and lending things, about who owns a house, a lot of it is just about what's common sense and what's common practice and what is it that people do. I think something else in the definition that's also very important is that we see how important it is to treat our workers' and people who are dealing business with fairly. And this is really something that comes up in the entire mishnah. the idea of not overcharging people that we had seen in the fourth parak, that idea of that we aren't supposed to charge people too little or too much, the idea of not giving interest, the idea of treating our workers fairly. These are all really about treating other people fairly. And we see that that's something very important we have in Judaism. And the rest of the Mishnah really drives that home. Because how does the Mishnah continue? It, with a story. And it says, I'm continuing in Parak Zion, Mishnah Aleph, Ma be Rabbi Yochanan ben Matya sh'amar levno. So there's a story with Rabbi Yochanan ben Matya who said to his son, "Say sechor l'anu polim. Go hire workers for us." Halach u'pasach l'hem izonot. He went to the workers, and when he was making the agreement with the workers, he said, "I'd give you food." Uchsheba itzel Aviv amarlo. So when the son went back to Rabbi Yochanan ben Matya, his father, the father said to the son, "Bini, my son, afilu imata u'selhem kisudat sholmo bishato o yatata yidir chovad so he says, you told them that you would feed them, but you didn't give them a certain amount that you would feed them. So now that you didn't give them a certain amount, if they would ask you for the feast the size of the ones that Solomon would eat, even if you would make for them a feast that big, that still wouldn't be enough since you didn't say the amount that you would give them because they're the sons of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Therefore, Therefore, so therefore, before they start working, go and say to them, all that you can claim as the food that you get as part of this deal is bread and legumes. The significance of that is that's what's considered to be a normal meal. That's not a big feast, but that's a very standard meal for the time. And what I think is being highlighted here is also the idea that we're calling all of the Israel and all of the workers, the children of B'nai Abraham Yitzhak and Yaakov. That they're so important and we care about them so much that we're going to call them the children of our avot of our forefathers and therefore he needs to very explicitly say this is the amount i'm going to agree to give to you because they're children of avar and yaakov so much more is due to them and the mishnah finishes rabbi shum mm-hmm. ben gomiel says no the son really shouldn't have needed to go back and clarify with the workers because really, everything is like the practice of the place. So when he's saying, I'm going to hire you and give you food to eat, he really only needs to give him the whatever the standard amount of food would be that they would normally get in these types of situations. But I think this sense is something that really comes up throughout whole Masechit also. It's not just the idea of treating people fairly, but also why is it that we're treating people fairly? Is The reason why we're treating people fairly is because they're the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the children of the starters of the Jewish nation. And because of that, and that alone, regardless of who they are, maybe someone who's a worker is in a lower social class than someone who's going to be the landowner who's hiring them. But regardless of who they are, the fact that they're a Jew, the fact that they're the children of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov is enough to make them important. Okay, so thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed learning Bava Metzia with me and go on to learn many more things in the future. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK, in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.